It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. All right, so one anonymous caller and their story about addiction. Let's do this. Addicts in the Dark. Hi, Nick. Hey, man. Thanks for calling. You got So, we've got 40 minutes for you to anonymously tell me your story about addiction. So, let's just get going. What's your addiction? My addiction is sexual addiction. Uh, you know, not to steal your thunder, but, uh, you know, there are many views uh, as far as the validity of, uh, of the addiction. But I can tell you firsthand, it's the real deal. Uh, I'm not a, uh, an alcoholic nor a drug addict, but in my realm, sexual addiction is the real thing. And it's something that is rooted in my childhood. So that is my addiction. And right now, what stage of the addiction would you say you're at? Are you in recovery or in the heat of it? I'm a, uh, I'm a recovering addict. Uh, however, I've been down this road before, uh, almost 10 years ago, where I attempted, uh, you know, to kid myself into believing that you know, reading a few treatment books would, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, give you enough traction to and sort of uh, meet out change that didn't happen. It's, you know, recovery is, is a day-by-day process. And uh, about um, three months into, you know, my, let's call it, you know, my legitimate uh, recovery right now, approach right now. So I would define myself as a recovering uh, addict. It's taking this thing day by day. You know, to mention that some might question the validity of an addiction like this, that might be because when often we're thinking about addictions that destroy people's lives, we're, we're thinking about illicit substances. Fair, fair point. So I guess maybe to help us understand what are some of those things, what makes sex addiction so destructive? You name it, my friend. You know, massage parlors, uh, strippers, um, prostitutes, drug addicts, um, you know, ambling down the road sexualizing people, not really, not connecting with them as, you know, as, uh, as humanity, but, you know, as a, uh, almost as if it's prey, it's, it's awful, but, you know, everything was seen through the addictive lens, you know, um, even when it, when it wasn't porn, you know, it was something that was kind of suggestive, so it just corrupted my whole system, how I filtered, how I processed uh, things, but tangibly speaking, yeah, a lot of it was porn. Uh, if, I, you know, if it wasn't porn, sure, you can take that away from me. Again, it's just that obsessive recall of porn that I had seen, the fantasy, my fantasy world, my head. And that in itself just triggers masturbation. And of course, there's that neurological sort of response where it's a rush. And that is my parallel to uh, perhaps drug addiction or alcoholism, where it's just that rush, the physiological rush. And I don't need a drug or alcohol. I mean, it's just within my fantasy world. Uh, you know, it's, it's that rush, it's that euphoria. So there's a lot of money, time spent, um, you know, feelings hurt, relationships, relationships crushed, marriages broken uh, as a result of my behavior. Yeah, those last couple you just mentioned, those are, those are hallmarks of the destruction of so many addicts. And you mentioned that your unhealthy relationship with sex actually began when you were young. 
yeah, yeah. There, there, there was some pretty significant um, sexual trauma in my childhood, and um, um, you know, when one hears the term sexual trauma, they may lead to uh, sexual, physical, sexual abuse, and of course, that's um, devastating in its own right. Um, in in my childhood, in my world, um, I was uh, exposed to pornography. Um, at a very young age, that left an imprint um, on my brain, and I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but I can tell you that I can refer back to images that I've seen going back over 40 years <clears throat> in detail, uh, even sounds, for example, from movies, images from magazines. So that there sort of that really jumps out. I was also um, the object of many sexual dares and exploitations. Nothing in, in in the... I can't say that I was raped, but I was certainly taken advantage of by um, older kids. And I did not process that, obviously, being a young person. So there's this very skewed... This skewed meaning of sex. I have really never known healthy sexuality just based, you know, on those reasons. And there are a few more episodes as well, but I would say that pornography, which is a, it's a monster in my life. It hasn't been over the past several months, but, um, it's been a, you know, a soul destroying exercise that I've known for two or three decades. You know, if I'm, if I'm ranking childhood trauma, you know, one would think, well, it's somebody taking advantage of you. But as a, as a child and not being able to process what you're seeing, explicit, you're not just talking, making playboy women, but full on sex, uh, I was completely jolted and jarred. And uh, it stained me. And I'm still grappling with that. And there are many other factors. But, um, that's where it started. And to go back to the beginning again about questioning the validity of something like this. That's the thing is, is sex is so primal. It's so innate for human beings. And you took it so far that something so natural became destructive. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. You got it. And, and sure, you can just tame it down and say, yeah, I see a nice girl or whatever, a nice woman. And uh, she's looking hot. Well, you know, what's the harm in sexualizing? Well, sure. You know, if it's healthy, I, I suppose. But Again, in my world, it's, it just seems like it, uh, it all ties into destruction. And when I say natural, I'm even talking about the more wholesome aspects of sex. Like you talked about objectifying, for example. I'll tell you straight up. If I were to watch too much porn in one day and then go on a date, game over. I'd have trouble looking that woman in the eye. I have trouble communicating, probably because I'd be objectifying her. And, you know, you're... You interesting you know your your analogy is you know or at least you're thinking hypothetically is that day you know if, if we can you know amplify that to you know you're spending weeks or months in my case years and decades and you are just you're priming yourself you're conditioning yourself to look at that woman you know uh, you know uh, less than what she deserves to be and that's something that I've just spent too many years doing. And now it's just, it's hitting the reset button. And why is that? What was the, the rock bottom that you hit that made you want to hit the reset button? So uh, <clears throat> I worked at a very uh, cushy uh, government job um, for about a decade. 
And um, I thought I had it made. You know, it was, it was, um, but I knew I was just coping. To me, it was, you know, it was a place where I could just sit, get through life, and fantasize. My MO was to meet as, win- as many women as possible and, um, you know, to have as much uh, sex as possible. And even if that wasn't the case, they were just objects for my sanity. So, um, it, you know, that was my, that was my purpose. That was my MO. Now, I met someone along the lines that had very uh, similar tastes uh, to me. And I don't know if he was an addict, but he was certainly someone with perversions and we just sort of gravitated towards one another. So um, we um, did, we made a, a rather, uh, well, stupid uh, decision. And we traded, uh, I wouldn't call it porn per se, but it was certainly erotic material. And we, it was uh, sent through the inter-office mail um, and it was intercepted. And we were obviously investigated. We were suspended. And it kicked off a uh, rather extensive investigation. And um, we were both terminated, which was unheard of, you know, in at least, you know, in that time, um, in that particular sector of the government, or perhaps any sector of the government where our union couldn't even uh, defend our actions. I thought to myself, you know, what kind of fucking idiot could put themselves in that position, job security for life, as they say, um, where I allowed a stupid decision, which was obviously needed out by my addictive ways, and lose uh, this job. And it's one of those things that I'm still reeling so many years uh, later as a result. So. That, that from a job perspective, was very, very difficult. I mean, I've learned my lesson since, you know, obviously, jobs that followed. But um, that was a really bitter pill to swallow. So I don't want you to give up your exact location in any way, but are you able to give me a rough idea as to where you live? Where I live, uh, I live in Ontario, Canada. Okay, Canada. That's what I was asking because I'm from Canada. So I can attest to when you say cushy government job, <laughs> you mean cushy government job. I can use a, a crude analogy, but landing a government job, again, perhaps, you know, 20 years ago as opposed to now, is the equivalent of winning a job lottery. And when you hear those cases of people winning a million bucks and they squander it, I don't, I can't relate to that, but I can tell you, I think that's a pretty good comparison. I think I squandered the job lottery um, and I fucked up. So you're absolutely right. It it really sucks. (laughs) And I'm still not quite at peace uh, over it, but that's just part of the recovery, of course, and uh, reconciliation, so to speak. Yeah. It's also sometimes part of the relapse. Absolutely. Dealing with that regret of all the things you fucked up while you were an addict. But in terms of the recovery in my life, I'm working a 12-step program, which was um, borrowed from AA. And one of those steps, you know, they talk about, you know, um, 
you you're working on a moral inventory and you're absolutely right you know whether it's relapse or fuck ups you know in your life financial <laughs> employment uh, this is part of the process where you just kind of have to let go um, but of course it's just a small piece for the recovery puzzle but uh, yeah just to tie the bow on that uh, on the job uh, on the job thing um, that was really really tough because and again, I'm looking in the rearview mirror, but if that hadn't happened, life would have been a little more comfortable uh, for me right now. But uh, I digress. And back to when that did all happen, or before it happened, rather, what about outside of work? You mentioned some crushed relationships. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, um, uh, I married the wrong woman um, many years ago. She was a bit of a party animal. And I connected party animal with, well, she was a fiend. And I objectified her. Um, I was very unfaithful uh, to her. She had a problem with alcohol. I certainly had a problem with my sexual addiction. Um, she was battling, and I would call it alcoholism, sure, my sexual addiction. And I was preaching from my ivory tower, and she needed help. She needed intervention. Um, and it just, it really reeks of the grandiosity of a, a sexual addict. I was just so self-centered. I was objectifying this woman who, you know, agreed to marry me and no one forced the other person to get married, but it was a, uh, complete waste of our energies. You know, um, she was shattered. Um, I actually decided that we should just get divorced because my addict was just fed up. You know, the addict couldn't deal with her feelings, couldn't deal with the fact that she was hurting. She was an alcoholic. And my addict, there was no humanity in my addict, just said, you know what, there's no time for this. Let's just move along. And that happened about the same time that I was turfed um, from that cushy government job. Those are just two sort of examples. Financially speaking, I mean, you can only imagine, and I, I've been part of my recovery, just, you know, sort of counting the dollars and cents, not to mention the time, that I would estimate there has been well over tens of thousands of dollars uh, spent uh, on escorts, on strippers, on massage parlors, um, subscriptions. Uh, and I'm still doing the tally. I'm, you know, sort of conducting my own sort of moral and financial inventory, it's very, very difficult. Those are two ma- ma- major examples of how my addiction um, spiraled out of control um, in a short period of time, uh, I would say in my, probably in my 30s. And here I am, you know, in my late 40s, and uh, I mean, things, things don't stop. <laughs> you know, things evolved, devolved, and uh, it's a sad story. Well, it sounds like you're making peace with your past, and it also sounds like it's a much more invested recovery this time. Yeah, this is my second time um, in recovery, and uh, you know, you know, it's it's funny. After I, well, it's not funny, but kind of is in hindsight. But when I after I lost my job, I just blamed everyone uh, but myself, um, and it took me a couple of years to you know understand. And obviously, there were some people that were very instrumental in helping me. <laughs> understand that I just couldn't go on blaming, um, you know, the world, uh, blaming society, my ex-employer. 
um, that I had to take, obviously, responsibility for my actions. So uh, that took a, a long time. And um, that kicked off that sort of self-exploration period of, uh, you know, what this sexual addiction was, uh, was all about. But um, didn't really dig into the didn't really dig into the, the, the childhood uh, trauma at that point. And there's no way uh, you know, someone is going to recover if there's, you know, that amount of sexual trauma. It has to be addressed. Painful process. But, uh, you know, I think that's what, uh, you know, someone would need to do in order to have any chance of uh, recovering themselves properly. You know, I talk to a lot of addicts. And nine times out of ten, if I'm talking to an addict in recovery, much like you just did, They'll apologize for finding humor in their past. It's like if you were to tell a story to a bunch of friends about some dumb shit you did when you were a kid. You might have gotten arrested at the time, but looking back on it, it's funny to think about how your brain worked. So what I'm saying is you don't have to apologize for finding humor in your past. I get it. A lot of addicts get it. So you've made peace with your past, but what about everyone else in your life? Yeah, so um, I have made... I wouldn't call them enemies, but uh, I have been ostracized by uh, quite a few people um, within my family and uh, you know circle of uh, ex friends, uh, ex coworkers um, that know of my struggles. And by the same token, you know I have been emboldened by, you know, people that really are that important to me, that, is, that have always stuck by my side. And I can say that my, um, you know, my siblings uh, have been there uh, for me. I have a very loving, supportive uh, mother. She's older, absolute doll. And, uh, you know, obviously I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, my wife. Uh, I don't know how and a lot of people within my circles um, are sort of even not family per se but just people saying or just kind of aghast that are you kidding me she's stuck around but um, she's incredibly supportive as well because uh, I don't know if we use the term mental health but it's clearly a mental health uh, issue that I've been struggling with and uh, a lot of people aren't comfortable with that term, you know, when you throw around sexual addiction, but it is, and, you know, people can argue about it, but again, I'm just speaking from my uh, experience. So she's, uh, she's, uh, she's been there. She's been very supportive. So, I mean, the line's been drawn in the sand, but I've, I've known that for quite some time and I'm not, you know, I'm not concerned about people that won't uh, or refuse to stand by my side. That's, that's fine. I know I've, I've really, um, if I've done any harm um, in life, most of the harm's been uh, to myself. And, um, you know, a lot of people who um, stand back and shudder and say, oh, you know, I can't be associated with that person, have to be perfect. And of course, you know, I say that in jest. But um, there are a lot of people living, you know, in shame and um, who have or are battling their own addictions or, or struggles and are afraid to come forward for, you know, reasons of not wanting to deal with the same kind of shame or rebuke or, you know, financial implications or jobs. I get that. Not everybody can come forward um, and deal with something that can be so hard, but something that catches up to you uh, over time. And it's certainly caught up to me. So 
um, yeah, get back to your question. Um, I'm in a pretty good spot, uh, right now. I mean, COVID obviously is awful for, uh, everyone. It's, um, further isolating, um, affected my employment uh, temporarily, but a bit of serendipity because I've been focusing on my treatment, which is great. So I can easily say that life sucks, but it certainly sucked a whole lot more six months uh, ago. So I think I'm on the right track. It's good to hear you really do think it's for real this time. And considering you're so far into treatment, there's something that you might have realized this time around in treatment that I think sometimes takes addicts some time to realize, which is... If you're an addict once, you're actually an addict for life. You got it. And the shittiest part about that, the shittiest part of being an addict for life is whatever you're addicted to, there's a good chance, whatever it is, illicit substance or not, that that thing is on this earth to be enjoyed. (laughs) And to me, that's always felt really unfair. It's unfair to be an addict for that reason. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in our world that are unfair. It's unfair when a child gets born into poverty. It's unfair to get diagnosed with a terminal illness at a young age. It's unfair to be born with a disability. And I'm not saying it's on the same level as any of those examples, but it's also unfair to be an addict. Well put. And in your case, talk about unfair. It's sex. It's porn. It's legal. It's readily available. It's right there. (laughs) You're not going to be risking your life at a street corner. Well, maybe a street corner to go get, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you said it and, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, laughing and having a sense of humor about it, but, uh, sometimes I, I kid with myself and I may have kid with somebody, perhaps my, my, one of my therapists, but like, you know, it just had to be sexual addiction. Like you could have given me the drug thing or the, you know, the alcohol thing. I'm not trying to make light of that, of course. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. uh, it is freaking tough because, it's not just about porn. There's this thing, you know, it's, it's called middle circle behavior where it's suggestive TV shows, attractive, you know, women walking down the street in the summertime where it just kicks things off. And, you know, and, and there's the, the associate, the associations of course, driving by, you know, these rub and tugs, massage parlors, even, you know, it just, it's so it's just hard to shut it off because you're absolutely right. You're always an addict. You just have to sort of, you know, you have to redefine how you look at things. And it just goes back to your whole, again, your value system, your belief system, how you perceive yourself, dropping the self-hatred, you know, dropping the resentment, going through the inventory. So it is a freaking um, laborious uh, process. But the end goal is, and this is not, I'm not speaking for all sexual addicts, but if you can some way, somehow attain healthy sexuality, then that's the greatest thing ever. Perhaps one day, I don't think so in my case, maybe I can look at porn, you know, with my partner and enjoy it in a healthy way. I don't think so, but it just depends on what's realistic uh, to the sexual addict. But you're right. It's like, it just had to be porn, you know, it just had to yeah. be, you know, whatever, strippers, uh, you know, exotic dancers, whatever you want to call them. But it's a tough pill to swallow. But as you say, it's all about perspective. You know, there are uh, people, you know, battling uh, for their lives, children um, that don't have, you know, what we have in Western civilization. So, um, you know, you just got to be meek, meek about it. 
You know, it's interesting you say that because often when addicts are in recovery or when they're seeking recovery, they're asked if they want a relationship with whatever they're addicted to, a healthy relationship with whatever you're addicted to. In your case, it's everywhere, whether you want it to be or not. So you're unlikely to just rid yourself of it. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's very well put. I mean, uh, I don't want to simplify uh, alcoholism or, you know, or, or drugging. But I guess the simplicity in abstaining is don't do drugs, uh, don't drink. Uh, in the case of sexual addiction, I'm just using porn as just one example. Um, but in our world, in the sex addict's world, you have to have boundaries. Um, you know, you, and um, I don't want to sort of go too far off the deep end with um, uh, with recovery tools in, in my community, but we have this thing called the three circles. Well, within these three circles, you have an inner circle, you have a middle circle, and an outer circle. Outer circle behavior is everything that's positive in terms of reconstructing itself, be it prayer, meditation, you know, reading, writing, so on and so forth. Middle circle is slippery uh, sort of behavior, you know, as, as I was alluding to earlier, suggestive TV shows, you know, fantasizing, gawking at women for more than, say, five seconds. Slippery meaning, where does it slip into? Well, it slips into your inner circle. My inner circle, obviously, pornography, um, unhealthy masturbation. So um, in in the addict's world, if you're working these circles, you're defining your boundaries. You're defining where you can and where you can't go. So, but, you know, it's, it's a moving target sometimes because, you know, you surely you have to avoid the inner circle to maintain sobriety, but you're hanging out in the middle circle. And that in itself could be an exercise in soul destruction. So it is just fucks with your head. <laughs> it really, really does. But there are a lot of parameters and a lot of emotional honesty when working these three circles, which, uh, which parallel the 12 uh, steps as well. There's just a lot of rules. And at the end of the day, you really have to be, again, emotionally honest about how you want to progress. So um, the, uh, the concept of boundaries and rules are super, super strict and must be abided to. Uh, if you want to, you know, gain some traction in, in recovery. That must be so tough. All addicts have triggers. And the amount of triggers that you must have as a sex addict in our society is overwhelming to think about. Yeah, triggers. Uh, good word. Triggers, 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 triggers. You know, I, I'm, I'm flipping channels. Um, you know, uh, at this point, I can't even watch TV. Uh, yeah, I don't. That's I, what actually, I was thinking. I, <laughs> I can't. You know, I, I canceled Netflix. Um, you know, I don't watch, uh, YouTube. Uh, I've got to say it's going to sound, you know, a little bit odd, but we have, uh, um, Stingray music channels. So what I do is just so I can say I've got two on, I listen to, you know, new age sort of tranquility kind of music and, uh, you know, um, read, right. I know it sounds really banal, but <laughs> that's kind of getting me through because if I'm flipping channels, you sure as hell going to find something suggestive and I really don't need that. So I'm actually in a, in a weird way, kind of glad that we're into the fall and you know, those hot summer days are, are behind us. Yeah, those hot summer days when your head is on a swivel. Oh geez. It, yeah. It, it was really tough. You know, I'm at the gym. Um, you know, so obviously fitness nutrition is a, is a big part of, uh, of recovery uh, as well, even if it's not your thing. Um, but yeah, the triggers are, are everywhere, but you just have to be hyper conscious of your thoughts 
at all times. It's really freaking unnerving, but it's almost like you're then, like you're in kindergarten. You're just checking your thoughts. Is this right? Is this wrong? It's your value system. So I guess getting back to levity and having a sense of humor, you kind of have to chuckle about it, you know, because you'll probably drive yourself mad, um, you know, for, for other reasons. So, um, yeah, triggers. I guess the thing, though, with having so many triggers is you get to give yourself so much credit. I don't know about you, but uh, at least from what I understand, a lot of addicts get to give themselves credit for making it through, making it through a day. You woke up and you were sober the day before. You get to give yourself a pat on the back with the amount of triggers that you have. Whether it means anything for me, serious kudos. Well, uh, you know, it'd be great to give yourself a pat on the back. Like, you know, every time you're, you know, say, you know, not checking out, you know, whatever hot girl coffee in the street and you're not staring at it more than three seconds, but it doesn't really work that way. But the thing that we do is, I mean, you got to be gentle and you got to be kind uh, to yourself. And again, have some sort of levity and, and, and sense of humor about it. So what we do is we just put it, it's not very cliche, but it's one day at a time. And, you know, within our fellowship, we have an expression that's called happy 24, obviously relating to 24 hours, you know, in the day. So, Milestones are a big deal. Um, in again, I don't have exposure to AA or, or uh, drug addicts uh, anonymous, but um, you know, I'm assuming it's, it's comparable. But uh, sobriety is the key. So every day that goes by, you're counting your sobriety, and if you're abstaining from the inner circle behaviors, which I alluded to earlier, well, that counts as a day of sobriety. So as I was mentioning to you earlier, <clears throat> I'm four months uh, into it. It doesn't mean I'm four months sober, um, but uh, there are people within some of the fellowships that uh, I attend, uh, either via Zoom due to COVID or sometimes in person, that have 30 years of sobriety. Now, that can mean abstaining from sex altogether. And that's not my goal, my friend, but, you know, it just it depends on what, you know, your, uh, how you conceptualize uh, sobriety and healthy sexuality, but it's crazy, you know? And yeah, it, I mean, talk about a person that deserves, you know, a medal. Um, it's somebody that's been, you know, abstinent, um, for that long. And again, you know, abstinence is obviously subjective, but, um, yeah. So to get back to your point, yeah, sure. You're, you're always, you know, you're kind of encouraging yourself, but in our world, it's typically, you know, one day at a time, one day of sobriety. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're in a fellowship meeting, you know, with somebody that's 33 years sober versus somebody who's, you know, three days sober, you're just a day away from tripping up <laughs> and relapsing. That's what we all sort of have in common. So these sex addicts in your fellowship, I'm curious, do they even have an appetite for sex anymore? I know a lot of drug addicts, they're, they're afraid of their drug of choice just because, you know they're gonna love it. There's uh there's there's a term in the uh, in the community they call it sexual anorexia. Yeah, and so um, where people sexual addicts become afraid to have sex, and perhaps it's because you know they might relapse or they just don't like the idea or their experience of being intimate, you know, with their partners. So it's not anorexia in its you know literal uh, sense, but uh, yeah, and so perhaps that ties into abstinence. I don't know. It's just it's, it's a little too heady for, for, for me to understand, but, you know, I, I get what you're saying. There's no doubt that sobriety, like 100% sobriety, is spiritual. 
I'd imagine complete abstinence just as spiritual. You know, I've, I've, I've actually, you know, I've, I've found God, uh, once again, um, you know, but I've also, you know, I'm dabbling with Buddhism, you know, I'm, uh, I'm incredibly introspective. I'm spiritual. I'm mystical. So, and if somebody wants to, you know, if an atheist wants to come along and say, Hey, that's a bunch of, you know, bunk. It's like, oh, that's fine. Smile. And it's working for me. It has been, um, you know, I feel a presence and, uh, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but, uh, spirituality is a big part of recovery and, you know, sort of referring back to what I was saying about, you know, when you can decide um, and throw your hands up and say, you know what, fuck, I'm powerless. <laughs> I need some help here. Spirituality, take my hand, guardian angel, God, whatever the case might be. But, you know, speaking from personal experience, I, I feel like it's working for me. Uh, I couldn't tell you how godless um, um, and powerful in a uh, an inflated all sense I felt even a year ago, just a completely different person. Like fuck God, God. <laughs> I was actually in a, in a bizarre kind of way drawn to um, satanic uh, imagery um, and even satanic uh, porn. It was just fucked. I'm like, where is this coming from? That's a thing, eh? Oh, of course it exists. I mean, yeah, it exists. There's a lot of stuff that I'm still. Well, why well, I, I won't. I mean, I won't get to the bottom of it, not, not anymore, but uh, there's a lot of stuff where I'm like shaking my head, like, are you kidding me? Like, there's a niche uh, for that. But yeah, it's, it's out there, and I'm drawn to it. I don't really want to understand why, but, you know, I don't know. Not to get into the whole God Satan thing, but that's just backing up a bit. I think spirituality and, you know, God fullness, whatever, you know, someone's conception is of that, that's perhaps going through recovery uh, is a big deal. Back to the Satan porn thing. It's not weird that you liked it or watched it. It's weird that somebody made it for somebody. Oh, yeah, right, somebody had to right. conceptualize that. I don't think you can. Yeah. You didn't come up with that. And you, oh, I've been looking no, for no, this. No, no, I didn't. No, <laughs> no, 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 not, not, uh, not at all. It's those damn logarithms or what are they? Algorithms. Algorithms. Yeah. Algorithms. Yeah. <sighs> So even though we're in the midst of a pandemic, because you've been working so hard in your recovery, by the sounds of it, things are actually looking more hopeful for you than maybe they have been ever before in your adult life. Yeah, yeah, I would, uh, I would say so. I, you know, um, I have a lot uh, to, to worry about, realistically, as a lot of us uh, do. But, man, I'm just trying to keep things simple. You know, it, it, when you're in recovery, you know, your recovery is number one. And, you know, it's going to sound a, a bit maybe insensitive to say, but, you know, sometimes recovery is more important than family. And, you know, it's hard to say that because family is supportive for the most part. You know, you got to keep your eye on, on recovery. And I've been doing that on a day-in, day-out basis. Again, emotional honesty are those key words. So uh, I think things are... You know, I'm feeling better about myself because, again, I'm, I'm emotionally honest uh, about it. I'm putting recovery first. And, um, you know, I, you can only control sort of what's within you. We can't control the, I mean, we can control COVID to an extent in terms of being responsible citizens. But in terms of, you know, what lurks a month from now, even six months from now, what have you, we don't know. So I just try to keep it on a day to day and, What's reassuring is there are a lot of people out there that are, are suffering just the same. And I hope that the medium 
um, you know, we'll reach out to people that are perhaps in recovery or maybe thinking about recovery or just maybe don't want to do it at this point. But I hope it gives people um, positive thought because uh, it'll change your life. Have you ever told this story? I know there are a lot of people in your life who know about some of your struggles and know what you've gone through, but have you ever gone this in depth? Um, I would say no. I, I would say no. I mean, I've obviously gone into depth with uh, with my therapist, um, who is a sex therapist. Um, so sure, you know, I've, I've you know, described uh, my experiences uh, as he's helped me through my recovery, but. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I answered it to the same, um, to the same degree or the same depth as I did to you, because I mean, your questions, I would say a lot more provocative. I mean, I don't know if I can say that's the case with, with a therapist for a number of reasons. So long and short of it is I'm pretty sure I answered you, um, like I've not answered anyone in terms of um, obviously the, the depth and, and, and the scope and the fact that, you know, the, the anonymity uh, bit of it uh, also sort of invoked maybe a, a different level of truth in speaking to you. Well, I'm obviously grateful I got to hear the story. I'm sure everyone's grateful they got to hear your story. Now that you've gotten it all out on the table, how do you feel? Well, you know, at this point in my life, I want to get a message out. And, um, you know, to me, if I'm putting the message out there, um, and it's doing someone some good, you know, whether or not that person's in recovery or, or a sex addict or an addict for that matter. Um, you know, that's, that's instrumental to me. And I described to you that I'm working my 12 steps and I'm not even near my 12 step, which is about helping others out. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting there. And, and um, I, I think conveying that message through you is is a big deal and of course you know that is my my intent and i think my calling for the rest of my life i should hope is to put the message out there so um it's enlightening you know it's, it's a great feeling to put it out there i mean there's a selfish aspect to it i'm, I'm not gonna lie but i mean that selfishness is um can be traced to helping myself but more importantly you know i'm i'm hoping that i can connect with people that perhaps are you know, living in the shadows, uh, so to speak, and are a little bit reticent about putting uh, their message out. So it was a good feeling. And it's proof that all that shame and guilt that addicts feel at every stage of the addiction can be channeled into something really positive. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to credit you um, for at least, you know, it's a bit of a springboard to me to be able to open up in, in the form of a, uh, in this form. Uh, you know, I've never done a podcast before, let alone opened up. Uh, like this. So I have to thank you uh, for your time and this opportunity. Likewise, my friend. And I hate to do this, but I got to do this and I got to do it abruptly for time. I got to let you go here, dude. You got it. My pleasure. Stay safe. So sexual addiction. Addiction of all forms comes along with a tremendous level of shame and guilt at every stage of the addiction. And that shame and guilt is probably the biggest block in the way of recovery for an addict. And you gotta figure with sex addiction, there's a slight stigma of, let's say, sleaziness associated with that addiction. And I don't know about you, but that guy, that guy didn't sound sleazy. 
Sounded like a guy who was looking to help addicts overcome the stigma by educating the rest of us. And that's part of the reason why we do this. Thanks for listening. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.